Uh, if you're a visitor with us here this morning, we are, we've been working our way through Psalm 107, and um, at the risk of being overly repetitious, again, one of the reasons why this psalm is so precious to me personally is because I, like you, am a, a person who has blown it at times. I've sinned. I've messed up. I've wandered away from what God laid out in His Word as the right thing to do. And during those seasons in my life where I spurned His counsel, I rebelled against His Word, I foolishly wandered off into sinful ways of thinking and behaving, I knew what was right and I rejected it. Uh, I would ask for a show of hands, but I know everybody would be like, mm. <laughs> But my guess is right now, many of you are like, yeah, that's been true for me too. You're sincere. You're a sincere follower of Jesus. I'm sure I know many of you well enough to know that that's true. But in the effort to put off the old man and to put on the new, there have been seasons where you, you just didn't do what was right. And as you began to reap the consequences of that, your rebellion, your rejection of the Word of God, your going on your own way, you begin to enter into the consequences of that. In our hearts, we begin to wonder, well, now I'm in a desperate place. I'm in a dark place. I'm in a place where I need to be delivered, but I need to call out to the very one who I said, I don't want what you are what you are saying, and now will he listen to me? Or again, like I've said many times, is God going to say, you made your bed, now you lie in it. You knew what I commanded in my word, you rejected it, now it's time for you to just wallow in the consequences of your rebellion. Is that, is that what God would say to you? And Psalm 107 is a direct and forceful repudiation of that kind of a thought. God forcefully rejects that that's who He is. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing what God Himself says in His Word about that scenario. Time and time again in Psalm 107, the picture is painted for us of people who are in a desperate place precisely because they rejected God's counsel. They didn't obey His will. They wandered off from Him. And now they're lost, they're broken, they're imprisoned. They cry out to God in their distress, and He delivers them. Guys, you may be listening to me right now, this morning, and you have made an absolute shipwreck of your life. That's how you feel about it. Maybe you are lost in addiction. Maybe you're living in the midst of relationships that are hopelessly broken, and in part, that's your fault. Maybe you have wandered so far off from God that you don't even think He's got you on the radar anymore. Maybe this morning you are living in the midst of an overwhelming sense of moral failure, and you're wondering, does that disqualify me from God's rescue? I knowingly rebelled. I knew the word and rejected it. God spoke to me and I stopped up my ears. Will he now listen to me when I cry out to him? Psalm 107 says, yes, he will. 
If you desire to come back to God, your rejection of God does not disqualify you from being rescued by God. He's a God of grace. He's not like you and me. Praise God. (laughs) He is good even when we're not. That's what Psalm 107 is about. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. He's good. He's good in a way we don't deserve. He's good in a way we've never been good. His steadfast love endures forever. It never wavered, even when you were totally unlovable. His steadfast love endures forever. He's good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let those who have experienced this radical goodness and grace say so. We come this morning to the fourth and final stanza that illustrates this great central truth about our God. And just to recap, where we've been previously, we, each of these stanzas depicts sin and its effects on us in a slightly different light. It's really just looking at this thing, sin, from all the angles. (laughs) But each depiction of sin is slightly different, but they're all depicting the same thing, which is sin and its effect on us. The first portrayal of sin, depiction of sin, was the idea about being lost in a desert waste. You've wandered way off course. That, That is actually the meaning of the Greek word for sin, which is a missing of the mark. It's an archery term, so if you shot an arrow and it flew wide of the target, that in Greek is sinning. You missed the mark. You failed to hit the target just on, dead on. And the first depiction of sin that Psalm 107 presents is sin as a a wandering, a thirsting, hungering for a place for your soul to be at rest, but you can't find it. Sin takes you off into a place where your, your needs are not met. You're unsatisfied, you're wandering and desperate and homeless and lost. That was the first depiction. And we talked about that on that morning. The next one was the idea of being imprisoned. Most people enter into sin saying, I want to be free of you. But then they find themselves a slave to a much crueler, wicked master. In saying, I want to be free of God, they become slaves to sin. And we talked about that, how sin imprisons us, it enslaves us, it subjects us to the will of these sinful cravings and desires. And God can free us from there. And then last week we talked about sin as a wasting disease, this thing that flourishes within us and eats away at uh, what would normally provide, you know, our, our soul's nourishment in the Lord. We, we um, were just destroyed from within by this flourishing of sin. And now this morning we come to the last, the final depiction of sin and its effects on us, and it's a storm, which is almost stereotypically the theme of almost every Christian rock song in the 90s. If you listen to Christian, it was all about storms, right? The, the greatest, in my mind, Christian uh, album ever was Flood by Jars of Clay. That came out like when I was a hip kid, you know, and that was, that was my jam, Flood. And it was all about 
this, not, it was not explicitly about this stanza, but it, thematically, yeah, that's what it was all about. So here we come to this final depiction of sin. And I'm in Psalm 107, beginning at verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, some doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and brought them to the desired, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders." Uh, when, when we lived in Florida, I was privileged to witness probably the strongest storm I've ever been in in my life. It was Hurricane Irma. Uh, we were far enough inland that it was still a hurricane when it got to our house, but the, the real nastiness of the storm had kind of been uh, absorbed by the, the coastal communities. Thank God for those coastal communities. <laughs> but I remember in the middle of the night, it kind of came through overnight, and I remember going out to the sink because I couldn't sleep. We had a metal roof and these big oak trees that overhang uh, over our house. So all night long, branches are just rattling on our roof. Bang, bang, crap. I'm like, we're all going to die. <laughs> but I remember going out to the sink, and I was just kind of standing there praying, listening to the storm. And it was just this constant roar, constant and you could kind of feel it against the house. I don't know how you can feel that, but I, maybe I just imagined it, but I felt like I could feel that wind pressing against the plane of the house. But over it all, I could hear tree frogs. Like they were just like, beep, beep, beep. It was weird that I could hear the tree frogs. They were still singing. But that's probably the strongest storm I've ever been in. And I got to experience that storm inside solid walls, underneath a roof that shed the rain. I can't imagine being in a storm like that on the open sea. I really have to use my imagination. I've never experienced anything like that. And maybe the biggest thing I've ever experienced is if I was in a rowboat in the wake of a powerboat that went by and it kind of went like this for a little bit. That's about the worst I've ever experienced of a storm. Maybe you've been in a storm at the open sea, I don't know, but I never have. So in the verses we're spending time in this morning, sin is depicted as a storm. And this is contrasted with last week's study in which sin was depicted as something that flourishes in our inner world, like a disease. And here, sin is depicted as something that batters us from the outside. And you see, sin is not one or the other, it's both. Job 5.7 says this, Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. I don't even know, need to know you very well today, but I know you're either in the middle of a storm, you're coming out of a storm, or you're heading into a storm. There is no other way for human beings to be. Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Jesus never lied. 
And in John 16, he said unambiguously, in this world, you will have trouble. You will. Not it's likely, but you will. Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. This is why with every child I have had, I feel like a bigger target. I mean, I just have thrown six children out there into this horrifying world, and they're all, every single last one of them is born to trouble, as surely as sparks fly upward. And I've multiplied my own trouble by virtue of having done that to myself. (laughs) Feels like sometimes. So now this word picture, verses 25 through 27, really get to the heart of it, 24 through 27, really. They paint for us this picture of of a storm, and it can really be divided into two parts. The first part describes the storm itself, and the second describes the effect of the storm on the people who are caught in it. Here's the description of the storm itself. And again, the psalmist is describing a physical storm, but he's doing it to illustrate a spiritual reality. Now, he's describing here the storm's... Uh, the metaphorical storms of sin that batter against our souls. It says, They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep, for He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. And what the psalmist is here trying to represent with great economy of language, the language of poetry, which in a very few words tries to capture this whole world of images and ideas, is the idea of something that is big and powerful, frightening, uh, a menacing range of white-capped waves that just keep advancing towards you, rolling, mounting up over your head. The boat goes up to the crest of the wave and then crashes down into the trough. And what all this stuff is depicting is something a force that acts upon people, but that people are powerless to act upon it. You can do nothing to affect a storm. When Hurricane Irma rolled towards our house, there was zero I could do to change the nature of the storm, the intensity of the storm, the direction of the storm. It was coming, it was relentless, it was unstoppable. All I could do was acknowledge it and do what I could to prepare myself to receive it. But this storm, these mounting waves, it's depicting something that's acting upon humans, but humans are powerless to do anything to it. And how many of you feel this morning, again, no showing of hands, how many of you feel like you are caught up and borne along in a current that is way stronger than you? There are forces in your life, there are things going on around you that are affecting you, but you feel powerless to affect them. You can do nothing to change the course, the intensity. It's coming whether you like it or not. It's happening to you, around you, battering you, lifting you up, crashing you down. You can do nothing to change it. You're powerless. You're like so much human debris caught up in these powerful, ruinous currents that surround us. Cultural change, economic change, 
even physical storms, forces in your own family. You see these things flourishing. You don't feel that you can do anything effectively to change it, and you feel helpless. And then comes the described the effect of the storm on the people who are caught in it. It says their courage melted away in their evil plight. They went out to sea full of vim and vigor. You know, I can do it. But now, face to face with the reality of these things, the the ferocious savagery of these things, the incredible power of these things, your courage melts. You can't do anything. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. And then it says they were at their wit's end. The way this description begins and ends is crucially important to see. I really want us to see and understand this here this morning. First, where does this storm come from? And second, where does it bring a person? That's what, ver- that's what these verses are showing us. First, let's ask the question, where does the storm come from? We need to back up here to verse 24, and it tells us, They saw the deeds of the Lord... His wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind. Where does this storm come from? God. He raised and commanded the storm, the wind. Now, this might strike you as a bit unexpected and counterintuitive, but the psalmist begins by describing this terrible storm as a wondrous work of God. And in verse 25, the psalmist states explicitly, plainly, that it is God who raised the storm. And we might sit here wondering, God, how can you call us a deliverer from the storm when you yourself sent it? (laughs) Isn't that a bit cheating? (laughs) Like, yeah, should we really give you credit from saving us from a storm that you yourself created? Well, let's just begin by acknowledging that the storm is sent by God and that the psalmist says it's wondrous, it's good. And the reason why it's good is because it was sent to take a person to a specific place, to create a specific effect on the people who are caught in the storm. If we accept the premise of the first three verses of Psalm 107, that God is good, He is good, full stop, He's good, and that His steadfast love endures forever, that He's a God who redeems and delivers. He's good, He's a redeemer, He's a God of steadfast love forever but he's the one who sends the storm, what then must we conclude about this storm? That it's good, that it's necessary, that this terrible, no good, very bad storm must be sent to achieve some good purpose. And the answer for that good purpose is found at the very end of verse 27, where it says that the people who are caught in the storm were at their wit's end. 
This is the good thing that God brings about through this terrible storm. This phrase that is most commonly translated in our English Bibles, I'm I'm aware there's probably a variety of translations here in the room. Most English translations render it at wit's end. In the original Hebrew, it was literally, and all their wisdom was swallowed or swallowed up. Our English expression, though, at wit's end, I think really perfectly expresses what the writer meant when he wrote that all their wisdom was swallowed. The idea of being at wit's end is the Bible's way of saying that when a person has come face to face with these incredibly powerful forces, with this world, this fallen world as it is, Human wisdom and understanding is completely useless to provide answers. That's what's meant here by saying they were at their wit's end. What is human wit and wisdom? It is our knowledge, our understanding, it's our ability to plan and our capacity to scheme and strategize our way toward desired outcomes. We say... A common expression in English is we say that people live by their wits. And what we mean by that is that it's our wits, it's our understanding and wisdom that allows us to make a go of it, makes us to survive and get through things. So if these people are at their wits end, it means simply that they are defeated. Man lives by his wits, yes, but death brings us to wit's end. What answer do you have, human being, for that? What solution does human wisdom provide for that? These verses describe a person who has done everything they can, but it's no use. They put out more sail. They took in sail. They threw things overboard to lighten the load. They wish they had more weight on for ballast. They have done everything they can do. They've turned into the wind. They tried to run with the wind. They tried to navigate out of it. There's no way. They're at their wit's end. There is nothing left that they know how to do. They are left just trying to mitigate the effects of the storm, not find a way out of it. That's all that they can do. They're swamped, they're going down, their capacity for self-help in the face of this repeated, relentless, advancing range of waves, all these troubles, their ability for self-help is zero. And that is precisely, guys, this is precisely why God sent the storm to begin with, to lay bare, to absolutely expose the feeble limits of man's wisdom and to force them to look away from themselves for help. I suppose, you know, if I took my very little son, Oliver, into the doctor for a surgery, he could say that I was the one who brought him to the place that hurt him. He could. It might be true to say that dad drove me here. Dad told, me the, told the man that it was okay to cut me. 
Dads held me down <laughs> while they did it. He might say all of that, but when later, as an adult, he looks back on those things, he would say it was wondrous. That was life-saving. That was needed. And right now, in all humility, what we need to recognize before God is that we need something more than relief from the storm. We need to know, we need to know that our problem is our self-reliance, our rejection of God, our independence from Him. Adam and Eve in the garden, we need to always go back to the, where this all started, where storms were birthed from. Adam and Eve in the garden said when they, when they sinned, when they ate of the fruit, the sin they committed, we talk about this all the time here at State Road, the sin they committed was saying it would be better if we were gods ourselves than if we had to continue trusting in God. And so having made that disastrous, ruinous decision, God mercifully sends this storm to show them you are not gods. You are not gods. You don't have answers. You don't have wisdom. You don't have wits to address these powerful forces that will absolutely kill you. You wanted to be free of me. You wanted to be a god rather than trusting in God. I am mercifully sending this storm to show you what life apart from me is. I am sending this storm so that you would, in all humility, say, God, I was wrong. Listen, you're not godlike, but you're not without a God. The storms are sent to show you how ungodlike you are and to show you that there is one you can cry out to and he will meet you there in the midst of the storm. He will deliver you. Uh, I, I, I can remember back in another lifetime when I was a police officer, very early on as a rookie cop, I would sometimes go to things where I felt like this was way above my pay grade. <laughs> I would show up to scenes that were very confusing and where I felt just flat-footed and unprepared and I didn't know what to do, and I would be filled with all of, I mean, as I'm facing all of this stuff, I'm just worried about lawsuits and who should I arrest, who's right, who's wrong, who to believe. I don't know. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'd be so filled with anxiety, and then the sergeant would show up, and I would be like, thank goodness. <laughs> it's no longer my problem. It's now Sarge's. Sarge's here. And Sarge would show up and start to sh say, do this, do that, get a statement from that one. And I would just be like, oh, great, I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> just don't make me in charge of this mess. And I think that when I gave my life to the Lord, I felt something very similar in my spirit. I did. You know, when you're trying, Paul, David in the Psalms said... And again, very poetic language here. If you're not an admirer of poetry, forgive us for spending so much time in the Psalms. But David says, I look to the rock that is taller than me. David, who's the king of the nation, all roads lead to him in that country. He's a mighty man. 
but he found comfort for his soul in looking to the rock that was taller than him. And I look out over many human beings, and I think much of their soul distress in the midst of storms of life is they think they're the tallest rock in the horizon. There is nothing bigger than them. There is nothing, there is no sergeant that shows up and says, I've got this, here's what you should do. (laughs) But God is such a one to us. Now, that requires some humility on our part. That requires us saying out loud and explicitly, which every part of the pride-filled human heart rebels against, that I'm not all that in a bag of chips. I am not the tallest rock around. Kids, I am not the end-all, be-all. There is one higher than me. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the strength. My job is not to point anyone towards me as awesome, but to point to the one who is. And there's great peace in that. There's a resting in that. But here we come. These people are at their wit's end. They've been brought to this place where they're like, there's nothing we can do. (laughs) I don't have the resources or the wisdom or the wits to help us get through this storm. And what do they do? It says, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders." Uh, We see a very similar principle, by the way, in church discipline. Um, When you're a member of the church and you openly embrace sin, in the Bible there is such a thing described as church discipline, where, you know, we need to, in some way, seek to help you come back to God. And, And Paul describes such a scenario in 1 Corinthians 5. He's writing to the church in Corinth who have some sin that has flourished in the middle of their church, the church has failed to really address it. And so Paul, from afar, has to write this letter. And he says this regarding a man who is living in sexual sin and really making um, no attempt to... He was really trying to have Christianity and in, in church and live in a way that um, didn't reflect well the, the confession of his faith. So he said to this man, this is 1 Corinthians 5, he said, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. This is a principle we see throughout the Bible that there are times where if a person has embraced sin, has rejected God's word, has spurned his counsel, rebelled against him, wandered way off, Rather than trying to make people comfortable in that state of separation from God, God says, send a storm. (laughs) The church is not commanded to do anything to this person, but just to release them into the stormy consequences of their own rebellion. Let them feel what it means to walk out from underneath God's protection so that they'll return to God. That's the thought here. So that... His spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So we see this. Storms are sent into our lives, not only as non-believers, but also in the life of a believer. If I wander away from what God has commanded, there will be a storm to send me back. 
to send me back. I remember at every point in every one of our children's lives, and I don't mean to, um, in using these illustrations all the time, say in any way that you're a child. Not, not at all. It's just I'm a parent of small children, so that's where all my illustrations come from. Go to another church if you don't like it. <laughs> but uh, at every point when I'm raising one of my little children, they will do something where like, we have to tell them not to do it a thousand times a day. And eventually we just go, you know what? Let them do it. <laughs> that's the only way they're going to learn. Like, don't climb over the back of the couch. Don't climb up on the back of the couch. Don't climb up on the back. Just let them climb up on the back of the couch. Because what happens is they topple off the back of the couch. There's a thud. They cry. They never do it again. Now, we're always faithful to say don't climb up on the back of the couch first. But when they spurn my counsel, as it were, <laughs> when, they, when they rebel against my word... When they foolishly engage in this act of great evil, climbing onto the back of the couch, eventually I, as their loving father who wishes no harm to visit them, just let them do it. But you know when they fall off the back of the couch, do you know what? I, I swoop in, I pick them up, I kiss their salty tears. I comfort them. I say, oh, isn't the world awful? I love them. I don't want anything bad to visit, be visited upon them. But that's what we're talking about. God allows us to climb up onto the back of the couch sometimes so that we experience what it is to step out from under His protection for the purpose of bringing us back. Now, I've already quoted this um, earlier in the, uh, in the service, but John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, in the midweek email this past week, I wrote about that scene in the Bible when Jesus and his disciples were out in a boat in the middle of the storm. You find it in Mark 4. Mysteriously, Jesus was sound asleep in the stern of the boat, even though the wind was howling, the waves were crashing over the sides, the boat was filling with water. His disciples, who are understandably terrified, woke Jesus up and asked him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, as I pointed out in the midweek email, any English teacher would classify that as a question, but it is not. That is not an inquiry. That is a statement, an accusation masquerading as a question. What they're really saying is, you don't care if we live or die. <laughs> We're going down. We're sinking and you're asleep. Don't you care? That's not a question. That's a statement. That's an accusation, I think. And I think very often, I'll be very vulnerable with you, during those times in my life where I've been there, I've tossed the same question heavenward. My prayers feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling. I feel like God's asleep somewhere. I'm bailing with all my might against some storm that's threatening to send me down to the bottom. I'm scared. I'm exhausted. I'm at my wit's end, and I'm yelling up to God, don't you even care? Where are you? Now, Jesus wakes up. I wish, there are so many scenes in the Bible, guys, I wish I could see. Um, I wish I could just go see it. 
But Jesus wakes up and He says to the storm, not to the disciples, peace, be still. And everything became quiet and very calm. Bam. And then comes the most interesting part of the story to me. The disciples were terrified. They were more scared in the stillness than they had been in the storm. But they're not scared of the stillness. They're scared of Jesus. They're horrified. The the word in your Bibles is very afraid. They're panicked. And I think the reason why is because of their question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And that question was a scary one to them in its implications. I mean, what possibilities were there? Could a man command the sea? Who exactly is this with us in the boat? It's a bit like if you were scared of the dark, and so you flicked the light on only to reveal that there were three bears in the room. (laughs) It's like before they were scared of the storm, but now the lights have come on, and they're like, oh, no. God Almighty has been hanging out with us. They're terrified. I wonder how well they knew the Psalms. It's possible they knew the Psalms very well. They grew up in a culture that was deeply religious. Children were given a very thorough religious instruction. I don't know. Uh, They weren't lettered people. They hadn't been to the best schools or anything like that. These were pretty rough human beings. I actually don't know how well they knew the Psalms, but it's possible that they knew them well enough that they may have been familiar with Psalm 65-7 where God Almighty is described as the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. They may have known Psalm 89, where it says of God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. They may have known about Psalm 93, where it says, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And of course, they may have known something of Psalm 107, where it says, He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. I think the thing that scared them (laughs) was the idea that they were looking at God. This is one of those moments where it kind of dawns on them. There really aren't a lot of possibilities for who has the capacity to command the wind to shut up. It's pretty amazing, but in the moment, I think they're terrified. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the forbidden tree in the garden, they broke all kinds of important relationships. First and most importantly, they broke the relationship with God. Because God is holy and righteous, He could not cohabitate with sin, and the result was separation in this shattered peace with God. That's why they feel fear. In this moment, when they realize or have an inkling, an imprecise possibility that this is God Himself, 
The first thing they feel is fear, and that's evidence of a shattered peace. God is righteous, and these men were not. He is good, and they are decidedly bad. God is the offended party, and they are 100% the offenders. They are suddenly caught behind enemy lines without any support or cover. They are looking God in the face and they feel fear because they're sinners. There's a shattered peace between man and God. But the other relationships were broken too. Man's relationship even with his own inner self was shattered. These human beings were filled with feelings of shame, doubt, anxiety, fear, anger, jealousy, pride, all these things, the product of an inner life that's totally depraved, every part of them polluted with sin. They have thoughts they don't want to have. They have feelings they don't want to feel. Their spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's no part of them that's pure and unpolluted by sin. Their relationship with one another is marked by brokenness and a shattered peace. Here in this room, we've all been injured and we've all injured others. The history of the human race is a long and sordid tale of suspicion, violence, deceit, abuse, exploitation, and terrible self-serving selfishness. Our relationship with creation is broken, and we see the evidence of this all in the world, diseases, natural disaster, pollution, parasites, drought, famine. Man wrestles a living from the earth by the sweat of his brow, battling thorns and thistles as he goes. We're not at peace with the earth we live on. And lastly, our relationship with time has been broken. Man was created in the garden for immortality. But because of sin, eternal life was forfeited. All of our bodies continue to break down until they eventually undergo death and decay. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Guys, we're living in the midst of all of these broken relationships, a shattered peace with God, an inner world that's broken and shattered. Our relationships are a mess. Our relationship with the world we live in, the created order, is wrong. And our relationship with time is is broken. Before the fall, Adam and Eve enjoyed a peaceful calm with God. There were no storms. Adam was at peace within himself, at peace with his partner Eve, at peace with the rest of creation. He was at peace with God, and time was without an end. Peace, calm, no storms. But now this world is an absolute stormy mess. The waves of advancing breakers are relentless, white-capped mountains of trouble as far as the eye can see. And the best mankind hopes for is, God, just get me over this next wave, not get me out of this reality. (laughs) What a mess we children of Adam have made of things. Today, the fruit of that first sin is a world full of horrifying realities and ominous possibilities. And we could list them, but I won't bore you with my imagination. Against this backdrop of a shattered peace, Jesus was born over 2,000 years ago. 
God in the flesh. They weren't wrong when they looked at this man and asked, who could this be? This can't be a man like us. He is the one of whom the Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 that he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that would bring us peace would be on him, and by his wounds we would be healed. Uh, Not to preach a Christmas sermon, but on the night Jesus was born, the angels proclaimed what? What did they sing? They said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. The peace that the angelic choir proclaimed was between God and those who put their trust in Jesus for salvation, those who accept Jesus as their peace offering. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14 says of Jesus that He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's our peace. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Colossians 1, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the peace. That was proclaimed when Jesus came into the world. It's a peace between God and fallen sinners. He is the one who comes to us in the middle of our storms and brings us peace, delivers us out of them, and takes us to a safe haven, a desired haven. So the good news I bring to you this morning is that if you're in the middle of a storm today, you feel like you are swamped and going down, you're at your wit's end God is not against you. Entertain with me the possibility that He has allowed this to enter your life so that you would look away from self-reliance towards reliance on Him. That His desire is to lay bare the feeble limits of your wit and wisdom to do anything about these kind of problems and to look to Him in trust as the one who delivers, our great Redeemer God, the one who is good, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let me pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word this morning. And uh, Father, we thank you for doing whatever was necessary to cause us to return to you. Father, that's a difficult prayer that we sometimes pray for people that we're worried about, that you would do whatever is necessary, not to make them comfortable in their state of separation, but God, to cause them to look to you, to return to you. Father, you are good. God, we state that as as a fact. You are good. It's who you are. And Father, we're loved by you. We give you thanks for the way that you love us, God. And sometimes it's counterintuitive. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for us is to allow us to enter a storm where we're shown what it is to walk away from you. 
And God, in all of it, your desire is that we would cry out to you in our distress and come back under the protection of who you are. Father, we thank you for the merciful, gracious, patient way that you pursue us. God, thank you for showing us that just because we have rebelled and gone astray, that does not disqualify us from rescue, that you're still for us. You, you remain a God of grace, uh, God, even when we have not appreciated who you are. So, God, I thank you for this word. Thank you for our time we've spent in Psalm 107. May it continue to grow and flourish in our hearts in the weeks and years ahead while we wait for Jesus to return. In Jesus' name, amen.